I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today we have with us TV and film veteran comedy writer and producer, Robin Schiff. She developed the characters Romy and Michelle, which later served as the basis for the hit film which she wrote, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. She was creator and producer of the CBS sitcom Almost Perfect and a writer for the comedy series Gross Point. Robin was a member of the improv comedy troupe The Groundlings with Pee Wee Herman and Phil Hartman. Robin was an executive producer for the multi-generational relationship comedy series Swipe Right for YouTube Red and is working on a musical based on her characters and her movie Romy and Michelle. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Robin Schiff. We can't wait to hear about your journey, Robin. Thanks for joining. Thank you. I've been in the Writers Guild since 1980, and I'm 63. Yeah. Good for you. You started really, really, really young. Your whole presence, stillness and intellect, and obviously you're a great humorist because you're groundlings, which is like you have to stand up there and win it every single night with your team, Well, sometimes you... Don't win it. I remember my first night in a Groundlings class, and I got involved with the Groundlings. I'd gone to see their shows for years, and Paul Rubens, who does Pee Wee Herman, was in it, Mm -hmm. Phil Hartman, and a lot of other people. And I was in therapy at the time, and this was before everyone and their uncle was on antidepressants. And the therapist is like, you're going to go on antidepressants unless you get out of the house. Because I was writing movies, and I didn't go anywhere and I was depressed so I thought well what could I do that might be fun I went to the groundling show and I'd done this one other time where I checked in to see what was entailed to get into the school and this time they were like oh a class is starting in a week so I really couldn't get out of it or have second Mm -hmm. thoughts and when I went to the first night, the time I got my first laugh, I was addicted. <laughs> I read uh, something about a heroin addict said the first time they did heroin, they were home. Uh-huh. And that's what I felt like. I felt like these are my people and I was home. And you were already you were already yeah. a writer. So like you right. added this this other dimension of discovering the narrative, because I always think of improv as a way to discover Yeah, it is absolutely. One of the things, there's two things. One, sometimes we would do an improv that would grow into a sketch. The other thing is being a writer is improv is anti-writing. If it's Mm -hmm. good, it disappears. So sometimes you get that nugget, you know, when I was in the Groundlings and you turn things into sketches. But a lot of times you're just in the present and you're getting that high off of, I didn't really know what I was going to say. And yet, Somehow or other it worked, you know, because it's a team sport. Mm -hmm. So in being in the moment, does that help you in your writing? Oh, yeah. 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 You know, when I'm at my best, I'm improvising with myself. That's cool. (laughs) Let's go back to the beginning because we're already right here. But let's take you back because I think to be a comedy writer or have any talent like that, that, it shows up really, really early in your life. So where did you grow up? And I grew up in L.A. My mom was also born in L.A. and went to L.A. high. And my dad was from Detroit and went to University of Michigan, became an orthodontist. 
And even though I grew up in L.A., my parents and their friends were all these upper middle class professional Jews, basically. Doctors, lawyers. Exactly. Real estate execs. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. My dad was a dentist <laughs> and it was sort of expected that I would either go to law school or business school. That wasn't for me. And Are you I should, an only child? No, I have a younger brother and I'm really close with him. Is he funny, too? Yeah, he is. <laughs> I should mention that. We would have these family dinners, and I had an uncle who was hilarious and outrageous. And my dad was, he wasn't as funny as he thought he was. My, <laughs> the, really, awesome. the son of the hilarious <laughs> uncle was also hilarious. And it would kind of entail somebody saying something stupid at some point in the dinner, and then everybody would keep circling back to it and mock the person. And that's very similar to a writer's room. You know, you go in, people are being funny, you got to get into the stream of the conversation. If you're in a good room, everybody mocks you when you pitch something shitty. But you had no history of being in the entertainment business growing no. up. You were a, but a you're, Jewish doctor's daughter right? Yeah. living in L.A., second generation, living in, where did you live? Brentwood. So you grew up on the west side. Right. And there you were. Did you have a nice childhood? Were you happy? No. My parents were both narcissists. And I will mention that I have an amazing relationship with my mother now. I had to create strong boundaries, which I did about 12 years ago. Wow. wow. Yeah. Maybe it was more like 15 years ago. It doesn't matter. It was, but you figured it out. I got to the end of my rope. Yeah. And I was going through my divorce, and my brother was divorced, and she said something that really upset me. And I got up, and I was like, I'm leaving. It was at brunch at my mom's house. First, I told her to be quiet, and she wouldn't be quiet. She kept talking. <laughs> And I said, I told you to be quiet. And she and she kept saying what she was saying. And I got up to leave. And I hear this little voice say, I'm sorry. And I'm making my big exit. I'm almost to the door. I'm about to leave. So I'm going. She said she was sorry. Now what do I do? So I went back and I sat down. And she'd never apologized to me. And later she came up. She was very emotional and said, I'm really sorry. Wow. And then I went in my car. And I remember I cried because I had, for the first time, I had empathy for her that she wanted something that she didn't know how to get, basically. Mm-hmm. She must have been in her 60s then, right? Right. Yeah, I was in my late 40s. Right. You're right. So it took her till that point in her life to be able to stop herself from being right. a narcissist and, and acknowledge you. Wow. How did, how did that show up when you were young? So is it like you felt you were walking on eggshells, that yeah. your voice was never heard? Yeah. yeah, both those things. You know, and I'm no shrinking violet either, so it was really confusing to me how I could speak up and it would have no impact. And how did humor fall? The humor came out at these dinners and when I went to other kids' houses to charm everyone. (laughs) And I was funny with, you know, with my friends. And my whole thing for years was to be outrageous. And it's interesting because I never was the calm person. The funny uncle was your dad's brother. Right. Right. My mom's family was the Finkels, and the Finkels are not really a continuing part of the family. And the Schiffs, I'm still really close with my cousin Michael. And then the second generation, they're my first cousin's kids, two of them I'm very close to. So that's where the that's the side of the family that had the humor in it. Right. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you remember that going to your friends' houses and being funny? It was mainly high school. Mm-hmm. 
I had a younger brother, and when I was little, I always liked to read books about big families. I had a fantasy of being from this big family. And so I would realize as years later, I would zero in on somebody who had a big family, and then I would start <laughs> hanging out, you know, hoping they would adopt me. And all the parents always loved me because I was funny. I wasn't a bad kid, although I cut class a lot. You know, you kind of got to do that. But I always got good grades. And I wasn't disrespectful, but I was outrageous. Was your mom a working person or was your dad the the, uh, the working parent? My dad was the working parent when I was in high school. When I was about 17, my mom went back to Pierce College and became a landscape designer. And then she ended up doing that for about 20 years. Mm. So she did work, just not when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Are you close now to your brother? Oh, yeah. I'm so close so to my close brother. With him. Oh, yeah. And what about your dad? My dad passed away when I was 34. Oh. Wow. But I never got that shift in the relationship that I did with my mom. Do you think that that was because you weren't ready to have it? or Yeah. It just didn't, and it, yeah. timing didn't work out. He was relatively young when he died. He was 67. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just find it interesting to be in high, like you're in high school, like, to be funny takes vulnerability. I can stand up in front of the class and make people laugh, or I can go to my friend's house and make everyone laugh. I didn't feel vulnerable at all. That was my thing. Yeah. You know, that was my thing is to yeah. be verbal, to be funny. And I say outrageous because I would just say things for a reaction. <laughs> I would just be riffing off other people and sort of say what mm-hmm. I thought of mm-hmm. and just, not holding yeah. myself back. Bold, like, Strong verbal wit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When did it come to consciousness that you said, you know, I think I'd really love to write comedy? I wrote when I was a kid. I always wrote. And my parents had one rule that I thought was terrific, which is this was in elementary school, too. My brother and I had to be in our rooms at a certain hour, but we could stay up reading or doing art or no TV. We, we only had one hour of TV during the week. And, of course, I write TV for a living, and I love TV more than anything. <laughs> It's just my favorite thing to do. (laughs) Somebody once said, you know, recently, well, you know, you should give up some of your TV. And I was like, no. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do it. So what would happen was whatever I was reading, it was almost like fan fiction. I didn't realize that that's what it was. But if I was reading Gone with the Wind, I would write a story about Antebellum South, you know, (laughs) and there would be all these characters in it and I could make them do whatever I wanted. And then when I would finish the book, I would abandon my writing. But I also did poetry. I remember one, our family, they took my brother and I to Alvera Street for Christmas. And this is the poem. My brother was a shepherd in a Christmas play. He walked and walked and carried a staff. I knew he was Jewish, but I didn't laugh. Bad, right? That's pretty wonderful. Good. Thank you. It's, it's the only poem I remember from my youth. But you can see, it's like if you were had a little kid and they wrote that poem. Oh my god! Yeah. That's so funny. That's adorable. But I used to have fantasies when I was a kid. I used to picture a book that I wrote when I was growing up. There was this great bookstore in the neighborhood called Dunn's Books, and I would picture a book that I wrote in the window of Dutton's. And one time, and I came across this not, you know, maybe a couple years ago, when I was 12 years old, I had written a book, and I had come up with a letter 
and I looked up all the publishers in the books, and the letter was something like, to whom it may concern. I have written a book, and I am 12 years old, so I am uniquely qualified to know what kids want. And, you know, just oh, this that's so ballsy great. letter, and you're going, where does this kid... <laughs> Then when I went to college, I studied history, and I sort of dropped out of the whole creative thing for a while. And I think I lost my confidence. And I was also a little influenced by my parents. And I had acted in high school, and then I gave it up in college. And I'm actually happy I did. I feel like I got a general education. I learned a few things that have stayed with me. And I think kids who just go into film are cutting themselves off from just an understanding of how the world works. What was the message your parents gave you? First, my dad's plan for me was to become a dental hygienist. Because at the time, because he was a dentist, he wanted me to be a dental hygienist because you could make 100 bucks a day and work three days a week so you had the rest of the time to raise your kids. And by the way, I don't have kids. (laughs) That was a good plan on his part for you. (laughs) Well, I understand where he was coming from because he thought I I was going to get married and have kids and do that whole thing. And then later, it was law school or business school. You know, and it was just the milieu that I came from. And this was another thing that I remember when I was first started writing. My mother sent me an article back in the days where you had to cut out articles from a newspaper, put them in an envelope, address it, put a stamp on and mail it. (laughs) But the article said it was about how only 6% of the people in the Writers Guild made a living at it. And I believe my response was, fuck you, how do you know I won't be one of the 6%? And when you look at my career, I'm a complete aberration. Female comedy writer, old bag, just got another job running a show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could lose the old bag part. But but you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm not in my 40s anymore. No, I understand. Statistics are just numbers. They don't actually define us. We define us. It's true, but... You have a great reputation, though. I mean, you've been around a long time, and I've never heard anything negative about you um i can give you some names (laughs) if you'd like you can't work as long as i have and not have people who don't like you and most people that i work with want to work with me again and i feel like that means more to me than somebody hiring me off my reputation right Mm -hmm. because that means that it was a great experience it was a good experience Uh did your dad get to see your success before he passed not really was he he worried about you I think he was. Well, the truth was, I was working for eight years, but I wasn't produced. So I was making a living, but my parents didn't understand what I was doing. What you were doing, yeah. And then I wrote a play called Ladies' Room. Romy and Michelle were characters in Ladies' Room, and it started as a sketch at the Groundlings. And it took place in a pickup bar, in a woman's bathroom of a pickup bar. And I'd been trying to get this off the ground forever. And my dad died in April. And there was about to be a strike, and Aaron Spelling had become aware of the play and wanted to put up money for it. And we did a production at the Tiffany Theater in Hollywood. But because of the strike, there was a ticking clock. So I'm at my dad's memorial service, and I'm getting these calls. It's like... (laughs) from Aaron Spelling's company, and are you going to do this? And it was just very weird. How yeah. long have Romy and Michelle been with you as character? Can you tell us about the origin story? of Sure. Them? Well, they started in the play Ladies' Room. 
the main characters in the play all work together at an advertising agency in this building and they come for happy hour and the basic idea that I wanted to explore at the time was I was very ambitious and very driven and I'd always thought that if I was successful enough that I would be more attractive and of course guys don't care about that I'm not saying they Sometimes all they're don't intimidated by that they're intimidated <laughs> yeah. by it so that didn't work the way I was thinking it would. <laughs> and so what I wanted to explore was the kind of complicated relationships between men and women. And this was in 87. And how do you stay physically attractive to men at the same time you're being the successful woman? And I, by the way, don't have the answer to that question. It was exploring it more mm -hmm. than anything else. Mm -hmm. So I made this decision. It was one set. You weren't going to go out into the bar that I was going to do it as real time. So in order to do that, the main characters had to exit into the bar. Stuff would happen. They would come back into the bathroom and talk about it. So I needed filler. So I came up with these characters of these three waitresses. And then I used to drive by Nikki Blair's. I don't know if you remember, oh, yeah, I Nikki, remember Blair's. Nikki Blair's. And it was like a club. And I would see all these girls waiting to get in, and they were all wearing black, but they were wearing different versions of the same outfit. So I decided to base these two girls on those girls, and that was Romy and Michelle. And in the play, they were just as disgusting as I could make them. Outrageous they, again. Outrageous yes. again. Yeah. Exactly. I had a run at the beginning of the play that didn't make it into the movie because I had to make the characters more dimensional. For the movie, but there was a whole run about Michelle going to the gyno, and I wanted to have it be as disgusting as possible without ever saying the word vagina. I mean, I wanted disgusting to see or honest. It was like, honest. Yeah. Because, well, I mean, you're kind cringy. of at the forefront cringy. of all of that. <laughs> I wasn't. Right? When you look at what mm. Lena and everyone's doing now, these young girls it, doing these shows about, let's just talk about what we actually talk about. And sex women. in the and city, were, too. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. was way years ahead. Years ahead of yeah. that. Because this was in 88, and I had the women talking about sex. Okay. But I do remember some of the run. I'll do see if I can remember the gyno run. So this is between Romy and Michelle. So I went to the gyno today. Ugh, I hate going to the gyno. <gasps> Me too. So what do you say about the infection? Oh, it's not an infection. So what is it, like a disease? No, it's because I left my diaphragm in. Oh, my God, Michelle, you're not supposed to leave it in. Yeah, that's what my gyno said. <laughs> So you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's a picture that you're painting in a exactly. way, right? Yeah. Exactly. But you never say... How dumb she is. You never say how, how dumb she is, but you also never say vagina. You never say... Right. Uh-huh. Discharge. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. saying this all now, but I went out of my way to make it as vivid as possible without being mm -hmm. obvious about right. it. Not because I'm a prude, because it was more of a challenge. Well, and it's also when you're speaking about those things, honestly, that's how you're going to connect to anybody exactly. that's watching. Yeah, I mean, we're, or, we're much you know, more in tune. I mean, this was yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's amazing. But I'm sure that's also what brought people in and back because of that ring of the truth. You're so endearing, you know, these two girls are so endearing. We had audiences of all ages and they loved the play now it was in a 99 seat house but what happened was Romy and Michelle had entrance applause and I'm going why and they look like those girls from Nikki Blair's so people who, recognize them who played those two parts Lisa Kudrow and a girl named Christy Mellor okay. oh. Lisa's first audition was for me and the director 
And she came in and there was a couplet that was, Romy says, I hate throwing up in public. And Michelle says, me too. And I'd written this and I knew it was funny, but I didn't know how funny it was. And so the line is, the other girl is like, I hate throwing up in public. And Lisa's like, me too. (laughs) It was literally her first audition. So she did this. I'm like, I love this girl. (laughs) And she inspired me. They started out in one scene and they wound up in five scenes. And I kept coming back to that, me too. This new underwear is totally riding up my butt crack. (gasps) Me too. (laughs) This bikini wax is totally itching me to death. (gasps) Me too. (laughs) You know, so. I can totally relate to you. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. It's just such a big, crazy coincidence. You go to school, university, you take history, and you kind of let your creative take the back seat. Right. So, so what happened? How did that come back for you? I graduated college with no skills and no idea what I wanted to do. One of the things that I learned that stuck with me is the sort of cycles that the world goes in. And, you know, all the Puritans came here for religious freedom, and their kids didn't give a shit. Right. Yeah. You know, or you look at the first wave of feminism, and... I'm not saying all the kids didn't give a shit, but then they're, I want to get married and, you know, I want to be there for my kids. And when people ask advice, you know, about being a writer, I say you better really want to do it. It better be who you are. Because not only is it hard to get jobs, but it's hard to write. Mm. And, you know, I've done a lot of stuff that I didn't want to do because I do this for a living. But every time I take a job just to take it, it's a disaster. And this new show that I'm doing for YouTube Red, Swipe Right, the show is such a good show. The girl who wrote it did such a great job. Her name is Carly Craig. She's an actress. She's going to star in it. But just the people that I've met on the project are just quality people. I'm really excited Mm. about it. You get that right at our age as we get older Mm. and with the reputation you have to decide that you want to work on great projects with great people, don't you think? Is that true for you? No, it's it's not not true true at all because I have to make a living. Mm. And I don't have the opportunities that I had when I was younger. When I was younger, I was like on the short list and I'm not on the short list anymore. So I work, you know, like I said, I'm going to be running this show. Where does it change? Was it an age thing? Just younger people are coming up? Yeah, exactly. Younger people are coming up. It's a young person's business. Mm -hmm. But the young people coming up need a seasoned person to make sure that they can get the job done and production doesn't slow down for incompetence. Mm -hmm. And Carly, your partner's with Carly in making it a great show. Exactly, exactly. And one of the things that I love about the subscription services for a writer is you write all the scripts before production so that you can really have fun in production. The thing that kills you in production on a regular show is to have to write while you're casting, shooting, and editing. And if, I mean, this sounds like a vacation to me to just have to, you know, make cast, shoot, and tell me, I'm, I do post. should know this, but I don't know what YouTube Swipe Right is. Is this a new network? Uh, YouTube Red. Red is the new network. It's a new subscription service. I guess Google bought YouTube. Yeah, a long mm-hmm. time ago. Long time ago. And they want to create original content like all these other subscription services. Like real content. It'll like real content. content. Yeah. I, Not I little 30-second, like you know. like what Amazon yeah. and Netflix Yeah. Have done. Oh, I didn't know that. They're they're do, they're I think it. at one point they tried to do things with YouTube that. stars, and there's no way to do it because you can't sustain it. So they want to make original content. Yeah. And it's a comedy. 
It's a comedy. It's I'm trying to encapsulate it, but it's a story of three generations of women. The mother and the daughter are both dating. And so the mother's a widow, and she's kind of getting back into the dating world. And the daughter, who's 35, has been just getting out of a 12-year relationship, which is based on what happened to Carly. And it's sort of dating, but it's also the relationship among the women and the family. Is it just common sense that being a female and a strong, outrageous female, that that's what you want to write comedy-wise? Or can you write, have you been involved in a lot of things that aren't women's stories? The, the last thing that I wrote that was produced was a pilot for Amazon called Down Dog. Did not go I further. But the main characters were three guys, and I'd never written guys before. I had this meeting. I needed a job. It was the producers could hire me, and they wanted to do something about three guys. Basically, they were like, we want to do a male sex in the city. Like, that's nothing. That's like a big nothing. That's just a show (laughs) about guys. But what I found was it took me a while to get comfortable writing guys. I was a little intimidated. One guy who was the sort of most, not macho, but the most sexist and... Unaware. Unaware and, you know, crass. (laughs) I was at Creation Cafe one day, and there were these guys buying juice, like green juice, and talking about it and talking about their diets. And I was like, these guys are girls. Yes. So then I'm like, I'm just going to write them like women with differences. Like one of the guys broke up with his girlfriend. Now, if it's women, the first thing you say is, oh, my God, I broke up with, you know, Dave. With the guys, I have them have a whole conversation before the guy says, oh, and by the way, I broke up with so-and-so. I tried to find those differences between men and women, but I made that guy kind of metro. And, you know, the yoga teacher had a much more successful girlfriend. But it was really fun because they were 35-year-old guys, and they just don't have the issues that we do. Yeah. And so it was relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) What was your first job? Let's go back again. My a little first bit. job, I'm trying to think. Oh, my first job was out of college, was yeah. as a media buyer. And those are the people I didn't do the creative for commercials. You buy the time. Were you at an agency? I was at a small agency called Target Enterprises. Okay. okay. I was horrible at math. Thank God I wasn't in creative because I might have gotten stuck there because I would have been good at it. Yeah. But I just hated this. This was in the mid to late 70s. I was making $1,200 a month. One of their biggest clients was Home Savings and Loan, and we had a meeting that said, please check the ashtrays for roach clips. You know, I was a wreck in those days. I really was. You know, the older I get, the... I've done a ton of spiritual work. I've done a ton of therapy. I'm not really doing any of that right now because I perfectly evolved and I don't really need to do anything <laughs> else. But, we, noticed, uh, we noticed that It's good to be you. perfect, right? <laughs> but, uh, you, know, you know, I have gone on quite a journey like a lot of people. As I mentioned, I've had depression and, you know, I'm on the right meds now, which is fantastic. I was seeing a therapist for years who was a meditator and she discouraged me from getting medicated and In retrospect, again, I'm happy that happened because sometimes change doesn't happen without sufficient pain. And if I had taken the meds, I might have been more content but never gotten to the 
root of my issues, like I probably wouldn't have been able to stand up to my mother because mm-hmm. I think a lot of real That's change, very profound. a lot of real change comes from you changing because you're never going to change that other person. Right. My mm-hmm. father always says that in order to get past the pain, you have to look at it. Yeah. You have to really take a look yeah. at it. So what happened was, again, this is also period specific, but I took the S training. And I was 19 years old Mm. or something like that. I took it again when I was 21 or something. It was a pastiche of spiritual wisdom from all over the world. But then they would, it had three parts. It was lecturing, it was sharing, and, oh, and meditation. But they would browbeat you. You weren't allowed to go to the bathroom. Basically, it was a little shaming and a little cult. Yeah, like at totally. Time. But mm-hmm. but what they did that I understand is if you want people to have an opportunity f- to change in two weekends, you kind of have to break them down. And I understood that in retrospect. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I understood that after going to a number of these things because you have to be receptive. But one of the things that they said was that it, that you just have to do it. It was years before the Nike just do it, but they talked about if you were a dancer and you say, well, I need the studio and I need the right shoes and I need a mirror and I need a teacher. Right, let go of the excuses. You'll never do it. So I was working at the media buying service. I was miserable. I think I had to be there by, I don't know what it was. It was early, but I would wake up really early. I would write for two hours every day. I wrote a novel. When I was in high school, I had an affair with one of my teachers, who was a complete predator. He had affairs with students every year. But I wrote a novel about that experience. And I got an agent from that who was one of my mother's landscaping clients. And uh, she told him about me, and he was going to talk to me to be nice. He read the book. He liked it. He tried to sell it. And nobody sold it. He lost interest in me, which it took me a while to figure out. Then I got another agent. I'd written a spec script. And by a fluke, it got to a girl I'd gone to high school with who was the head reader at CAA at the time, which was a new agency. And it was submitted, and she had talked them into reading over the transom material for one month. The script came in on the last day of the month. Oh, wow. And she read it. I got a letter from her saying, let's have drinks. I just finished another script, which I gave her, and they signed me. But it was a total fluke. So you're working and writing at night. I was working at the media buying service, waking up every morning and writing at lunch. I didn't write at night because I was so fried. So I'm doing this. I finish the book. I get this agent. And all I want to do is write full time. So I think to myself, how can I get some money? And of course, the obvious answer is go on a game show. So <laughs> yeah, that's the obvious answer. That was, Everybody I'm knows sitting that. here going, how can I make I some money? I love that <laughs> So I went on password and won $7,500 and a car and years and years supply of Drano. You know, (laughs) they would give you these coupons for Drano and I got a lot of Drano. (laughs) So I won the money. You can't make this shit up. You can't make this shit up. So I won that money. you sell it to an anarchist? I quit my job. My apartment at the time in Santa Monica and it was a one bedroom cottage. It was Spanish style, just gorgeous, was $170 a month. So that's how I managed to survive on $1,200 a month. 
Then I started getting temp work because I was starting to run out of money. And then this script that I wrote got optioned. The woman signed me. It was optioned by this guy named Henry Jaglum for $2,500. My agents begged me not to make the deal because it was like your firstborn, 400 drafts, Mm. you know. And he was known to be a nut. And he was a giant nut. (laughs) And I ran into him years later and was just kind of fond of him at that point. But I wasn't fond of him at the time. So you did sign and you did. I did do it. Uh It was the first money that I made was $2,500 from Henry Jaglum. So he got my career started. And Cheryl Peterson, the first agent. So you felt at that time that you could quit your job working? At the- well, I quit my job because I won the money on the game show. Oh, <laughs> that, right. There you go. You, you yeah. basically bought six months to you figure were it right. out. Rich. Yeah. Exactly. But <laughs> yeah. I wrote full time, which yeah. was a miracle. A lot of times people create opportunities for themselves and then discover how hard it is to do it when you have no deadlines or people encouraging you to do it but it was so essential about who you were yeah exactly you were always doing it yeah it sounds like you you never stopped doing it even when you were in school is your mother proud of you now yeah it's so proud of me that's great yeah did your dad get to see any of this success no no No, because he died I was starting to tell that story so I made the deal for the play at his memorial service and when the play happened after not being produced for eight years I got a million things that I'd been working on forever. The strike happened. The play was happening, so I didn't even have to feel guilty about not trying to get work. I had a low-budget movie in production called Lover Boy that's still very popular. You know, boys who were 14 when that movie came out, you know, still love that movie. I had another TV movie in production, and a show that I'd worked on that had gotten canceled was being repeated because I had nothing to air, so I had money coming in from a network rerun. I've never been so happy in my life, so it went from nothing to a million things happening, but my dad had just died. Mm. What's your favorite thing that you've worked on? Well, Romy and Michelle by far. Yeah. Because I felt like it was totally me. It was really weird. The studio didn't get any of the laughs because I don't write jokes. I write character stuff. But knowing how Lisa Kudrow might say the word okay, (gasps) okay. Or, you know what I'm saying? That's a laugh. But they would read it, and it didn't look like a laugh on a page. It just looked like I couldn't come up with a joke, you know? So the movie was in development on and off for five years. And it tested. It was one of the worst testing movies in the history of Touchstone. And then it opened. It got great reviews. Siskel and Ebert loved it. Janet Maslin wrote a great review in the New York Times. The L.A. Times loved it. There were a couple papers, but minor. Completely unimportant. No, it's st- to this day, it's like a cult film. I it's mean, a you, big yeah. cult film. You we can't just, say that, that name to anybody that doesn't know. Oh, Romy and Michelle. We just had our 20th anniversary, and I was interviewed. Vanity Fair, E, Huffington Post. I think it was Vogue. There were a million different interviews, completely spontaneous. I didn't hire a publicity person, and neither did Disney. And all these people knew. We had the big screening downtown, and it was all kids in their 30s -hmm. who came dressed up. Did you have a sense within yourself, like, this is going to be great? No. 
So you were like, oh my God, this is going to be a complete flight. Everyone's telling me this correct. isn't going to work. That's correct. Wow. The director basically simultaneously quit and was fired off the movie. So he wasn't there for the last four months of post. So Barry Kemp and I recut the movie in three weeks. So there were whole chunks the way that he had them, but we changed a ton of stuff. There's a scene at the beginning of the movie where Romy and Michelle are getting ready to go out and they're looking at themselves and saying, I can't believe how cute we look. And don't you love how we can say that to each other and we know we're not being conceited? No, we're just being honest. (laughs) One of the things that I find that you do with your girlfriends is you don't completely run yourself down, right? You have your girlfriends you want to call and go, I looked amazing today. Or this successful thing, amazing thing happened to me and have, you know, be, be accepted for that. Yeah. But yeah, that but... was a scene that he didn't understand because yeah. he was a guy. So he'd taken it out of the movie and he's like, well, the audience is going to hate them if they say that because they're so pretty. I'm like, they look like drag queens. <laughs> they're unique in their own weird way. Yeah. yeah. And nobody's going to think that. So I put that back in. We cut for story and he cut for jokes. So the feedback you got was before you cut? Yes. So you guys in that 3 weeks, you and your instincts were like we're going to turn this around and you you made it the movie that well, it we, is. Yes. We knew we wanted to cut to story and the plot is we're going to the reunion, but the story is this the story of two women who are best friends who, when they start being something they're not, it puts a strain on their relationship. And so every scene was cut to the story of the friendship. And to me, he had lost track of that story because that wasn't what he was paying Mm -hmm. attention to. So Barry and I were able to do that. They came up with another $800,000 for music. And I think that really had to do with the producer, Larry Mark, who was friends with the head of the studio. So for example, Time After Time, which has two occurrences in the movie, was $240,000. And, you know, it's insane. You know, you can get Stone songs for $60,000. So they never tested it again. And then they came up with this genius commercial and that genius one sheet. And they opened it wide. And the rest is history. But I know I loved it. But I was so, you know, I was so kind of beaten up by the process. I felt like it gotten in better shape. But I was really expecting a spanking, Mm. you know, a public spanking. And I actually made plans to go out of town that weekend. Oh, wow. And what happened was the same studio was releasing Gross Point Blank, Mm -hmm. which was another reunion movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was also a good film. It was a really good film. The president of the studio was Joe Roth. His wife, Donna Roth, had produced Gross Point Blank, so they switched the two weekends. So the weekend I was supposed to be out of town was during Gross Point Blank, and then I was in town for the (laughs) opening of Romy and Michelle. They had no premiere for us. They literally had a shitty party at the Sportsman's Lodge. (laughs) (laughs) You know, with some balloons. You know, it was so pathetic. And then it was really a slow build. I feel like the movie really took off with video. And I think that's why all those young kids come to see it, because the movie wasn't a big hit in the theaters, even though people kind of think it was. A cult hit to build needs time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think about when I think about that film is it's like 
an archetype that was revealed, and it was revealed because you got to be in charge of telling the story. Right. Now I know that from what you told me, but it is such a strong archetype. Like, I have nieces who are a little younger than the kids and they're sort of 34, 35, which is the age group that's really deeply into it, but they refer to Romy and Michelle. It's like... People say, oh, we're a Romy and Michelle because it's such an archetype. But nobody had created that for this era. And you kind of did that with those characters. One of the things that was happening in that moment was Clueless had come out and done really well. And part of my theory is that Titanic was driven by the young female audience. And I think those two things influenced Romy and Michelle getting made. And by the time Lisa was a big star, it was in development for five years. Mm. So at the beginning of the process, she hadn't been on Friends. Right. It goes really back to how you write to characters. And that's, I think, what makes something like a movie like Romy and and Michelle endure. What I wanted to do was have it have surprising depth. And that I wanted people to feel emotional, like in the scene where they make up and it's really emotional and the girls really play it real. I think people are surprised that they feel I love that surprising depth. We're probably not as surprised now in this age. But when that came out, surprising depths of true because people didn't yeah. talk about, they didn't see that. It was very, we don't want to talk about it. It shouldn't be, you know, you talk well, behind closed doors or, you know, just a Well, it's embarrassing friend. to admit that you want to go impress people. I went to Pacific Palisades High School and we had this completely undistinguished class, you know, just complete nobody that I stayed in touch with. I had one friend that I'm still really close with. But these were people I wasn't friends with. I didn't care about them in high school. And I still wanted to impress them. You know, you still wanted to go. I was a TV writer or film writer. And I knew I was going to probably be the most impressive person there. (laughs) And I was still like, I want to go. We all want to be loved. We we all want to be loved. And, you know, we all have these things about our friends that we accept that don't really bother us in general but if those things were really put under pressure and we had to say those things to someone else it would be really hurtful Mm -hmm. and that's what I tried to do with the fight so it's really silly they're fighting over who invented post-its but I wanted it to really be about these underlying feelings that come out and they know the meanest thing you know when you have your best friend you know what would be their biggest Achilles heel, and they say that to one another. But then when push comes to shove, they're immediately back for each other. Did you ever see a book that you've written in the front window of a bookstore? No, because I stopped writing books, and I was writing you know, screenplays. And a good friend of mine, she actually pretty much co-created Late Night with David Letterman with Dave, Meryl Marco. But she started writing books. And she's like, there's no white space on the page. (laughs) It's all words. And she said, can you imagine having to revise something and read, you know, 300, 400 pages? So I'm not going to do that. What is it when you sit down to write something? What is your process? You have a you sitting in a room by yourself with music playing? What does it look like? interesting question it varies like I'm a night person so sometimes when I'm really resisting I'll just find myself literally drifting into my office at nine o'clock at night lately I've been working during the day I don't work at all for months at a time I don't have a set time I write every day I really wish I did I have this belief that I would be a happier person if I did all of these things every day meditate walk and write at the same time every day I'm so much happier when I'm writing (laughs) is there anything still on your bucket list yeah, to accomplish. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. You know, I'd like the musical to have a life. In terms of 
A bucket list. Not really. It would be really fantastic to have something else that people responded to as much as Romy and Michelle, you know? But I don't know if that's going to happen. So, um, no, you don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And you're still very much in the game. You're still very passionate about what you love to do. Except when I'm quitting the business. Well, like a month ago. But it only but takes three times. But all the years I've known you, you've wanted to do that before, so we don't really pay attention yeah, to that. Count that. I do Which on is and off. Like it's really hard, you it's know, hard. to do this all these years. Do you take much time off? Yeah. And what do you like to do? You know, I take little trips with my girlfriends. I like Ojai, I like Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Mostly go there. My good friend of mine has a house in Aspen. I'll go up there. I'm going to Hawaii on Sunday because mm-hmm. I'm going to start working really hard. I do not have a lot of interests. My ex-husband complained, you don't have any interests or hobbies. How can I buy you a present? But my interests and hobbies are all within the range of writing and improv. So that's what makes brings a lot of joy in your life. Right. But I do different things with it. Like I teach a class called Improv for Writing. I teach it infrequently because I do it for fun. I do mentoring with war veterans, which is also writing. This is through the Writers Guild Foundation. You know, just stuff I'm interested in is within that range or pushing myself to write something. I wouldn't mind writing something that was more dramatic than what I've been writing. And I'm sort of moving in that direction anyway. Well, it's nice that what you do, that you can be 85 and still, you know, still create. It's something that's with you that that creativity is, you know, going to come out. You could be the type of person and woman that at 82 write this incredible story about this journey. I mean, who knows what will manifest from that for you? It could be your biggest, most successful thing at that age. It could be. I don't know if I'll still want to be writing then. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This has been a great conversation. Really. Thank you, Robin. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Loved talking to you. Next time, you'll meet Missy Robertson, who has lived life in the spotlight ever since her family's record-breaking reality show broke into television. The Duck Dynasty reality series portrayed the lives of the Robertson family and their family-owned business, Duck Commander, which makes products for duck hunters. The show broke several ratings records on A&E, but ended in March of 2017. Despite the increased publicity on her family and personal life, she has become a strong local and global voice for morality and virtue. She married her husband, Jace Robertson, at the age of 19 and has contributed heavily and has been an integral part of the Robertson family business, which includes her own jewelry line called Laminin. She is the author of a book titled Blessed, 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 which chronicles her raising of a child born with a cleft lip and palate, which led to the Mia Moo Fund that's dedicated to raising awareness and giving financial assistance to children with this disorder. She is a devoted mother of three children who focuses on having a strong, happy, and loving family. So let's find out how she does it all as we rewind to the beginning on the next Say It Forward with Missy Robertson. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 